Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Friends, this is Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for choosing to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open. But thanks so much for being with us, and enjoy the broadcast. friends. I don't care if you're stuck in rush hour traffic or standing at the kitchen sink preparing dinner. Let's go on a journey, a journey back into American history and learn how one couple persevered, put their shoulder, if you will, to the wheel. And despite a whole bunch of hard circumstances, persevered. And as a result, America was better for it. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Do you love history? I hope you do. I hope you don't look back at history and see it's a bunch of dusty old books and it has no relevance whatsoever for where we are today. Nothing could be farther from the truth. And for those of us who love Jesus and follow him and love his word, studying history and the role that faith has played is even more important. So roll up your sleeves and come with me, if you will, to study one of America's great families. And I do mean great. And we get to walk through the pages of history with a woman who understands the power of writing. In fact, she has once quoted Benjamin Franklin, who said, if you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write the things worth reading or do the things worth the writing. And that's exactly what Jane Hampton Cook does. She loves history and she makes history come alive. Well, if I can be so bold, probably better than any other historical author that I read. And I love to read history. Jane is a national media commentator. She's a presidential historian and she's a former White House webmaster. She received a research fellowship from the Organization of American Historians and the White House Historical Association to study the White House, presidents and the first ladies back in 2003. And guess what? As a result of that, 
Seven books came along, including the one we're going to talk about today, American Phoenix, John Quincy and Louisa Adams, The War of 1812 and the Exile that Saved American Independence. Jane, I'm just absolutely enthralled with your writing. Thank you for every book you've written thus far, and I hope I haven't missed a one of them. But I'm particularly excited about this one because I have a passion for the Adams family. And I thank you for taking this small piece of history and reminding me the role of faith, commitment in a marriage, trials and tribulations in life, and the God who loves and protects us in the midst of all of this. So thank you so very, very much for being with us. And I have to ask you, despite the short little curriculum vitae that I read, you have to acquire a love of history. When did you really fall in love with history? Because I have to tell you, honestly, I think writing historical books are probably, it's the toughest assignment any writer can have. Well, you know, I... When, um, when I worked for President George W. Bush, when he was the governor of Texas, he talked a lot to Texans about Governor Sam Houston, a Texas hero. And I got really caught up in Sam Houston's story because he overcame you know, alcoholism, he came to faith in Christ, and his heart was changed. And I, got, I wrote, ended up writing a, a book for children about Sam Houston, and that's when the spark really happened for me, was, wow, I really like history. I really like looking at someone's life and trying to bring it to life in a, in a way that's real and relevant. So that probably started wow. 98. Wow. And you didn't get discouraged, because as I said before, anyone who's ever put pen to paper understands that there's all different genres that you can write, but historical writing, and I, I can only imagine what kind of an editor you had putting this book together, it's check, 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 and recheck to make sure your facts are right. And when you sit down to write, you must have 150 reference books or sites that you go to because you have to condense history and put it in the, between the covers of, two, of, of a book, and that's not easy to do. No, it's not. And what I've come to do over the years is I will do my best to start with a diary or an original mm. source, the person's own writings, if, I can, if, if it exists. And then I'll read through their writings, and then I'll start looking at all those reference books to try to make sense of what I'm reading, because I've discovered that it really does make a difference if you start with that person's point of view on what their life was like. And that's what I did with with American Phoenix. I read through John Quincy Adams' diary from this time period and Louisa's. And then I wove their their original thoughts together. And then I was I was looking at what was that battle um, over here, and why what was the embargo, and why did Jefferson President Jefferson do that? And and then it all begins begins to make sense and come together once you start with the original source. Well, if you don't mind, Jane, I would like to back up a little bit before we dive into John Quincy. And I want to talk about his dad and his mom, because the fact that John Quincy was is in and of itself, I think, very important because, boy, Abigail had a tough time with her children, the ones that she lost, the ones that grew to be young adults, but then lost their own battles with their own demons that they had. And the fact that John Quincy pressed on and became who he was, and we'll certainly talk about his rich life as well is in and of itself, I think, noteworthy. But his mother and father, a sound marriage, but not unlike his mother and father, John Quincy gets separated from his wife as well. Yes, that's true. And in both cases, it was it was 
public service that yes. led to their separation. Um, John and Abigail's was much longer, but uh, because it was through you know a good portion of the American Revolution, and because of that though we have their letters back and forth to each other. But um, John Quincy's separation from Louisa really came um, while he was negotiating the Treaty of Ghent, and it was about about a year um, while they were apart, and they wrote letters back and forth during that time period. Wow, and not as long, obviously, as John and Abigail when they were separated right. as well. But uh, some of John Quincy's brothers th- had problems, did they not? Yes, sure. Um, alcoholism was it was a problem, um, you know, and childhood death and infant death. They lost a daughter, Susanna, um, very young, uh, which was which was very hard on the, the family, of course. And so you have, um, you know, people struggle with problems no matter the generation, and. And you see that played out in, in their family, and you see, you know, am- amazing, tremendous success in John Quincy's life and his brother Thomas's life, and then you see, you know, tragedy that was very, very difficult on the Adams's family to lose Charles mm-hmm. to alcoholism. Mm-hmm. One quick question as I come up to break, and by the way, folks, the book is about yay thick. So even with the gift of one hour of Jane's time, you understand that reading the book lets you plumb much deeper than we'll be able to do in this hour. So I hope I just whet your appetite and pique your curiosity on the life of John Quincy Adams and his beautiful wife, Louisa. More with Jane Hampton Cook when we get back. Janet Parshall, and I want to take a moment to remind you that today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open. But I sure do appreciate your spending the hour with us, and thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the program. Johnny Bull, beware, keep your proper distance, else we'll make you stare at our firm resistance, let alone the lads who are freedom-tasting. Recollect our dads Gave you once a basting Pickaxe, shovel, spade Historical music as we're discussing John Adams and his wife Louisa Adams with Jane Hampton Cook an absolutely fabulous author when it comes to U.S. history. Her newest book is called American Phoenix and is is the story of just a small segment of their life. And that's exactly where I want to go to, Jane. The president that precedes John Quincy Adams is James Monroe. 1809, he loses a job that he loved very much. What was that job? Well, John Quincy Adams had been in the U.S. Senate and um, that was his dream job at the time. It's what he wanted to do. And he took a principled stand, and he supported what was called the Embargo Act. And the thing is that that cut off trade with, um, with Europe, uh, and that really n- affected the merchants in Boston. And so they no longer supported him for the U.S. Senate. So he ended up resigning when they chose another candidate. So he goes back to, to Harvard. He thinks he's going to teach the rest of his life. And and then he gets this opportunity to go to be the first ambassador. It was called something else back then, but the first ambassador to Russia. Um, and his political enemies are thrilled to get him out of the country. But his friends say, hey, this is an honorable exile. And so he takes a job that he didn't really want, but it was his duty to serve the public 
and so he took this job as the first diplomat to Russia, and mm. um, and that's how his journey begins. Shane, what was the United States' brand new country? And by the way, we're going to get into the War of 1812 in a bit, but what was sure. the U.S. relationship with Russia prior to the War of 1812? Well, Russia had never acknowledged our independence. They'd never acknowledged us as a sovereign, separate country. We had a consul over there, but that was it. That He didn't have the same privileges that an ambassador-type person would have. So Russia had never officially acknowledged us, and they were the largest country in Europe. James Madison, the president at the time, recognized if the largest country in Europe would trade with us, Maybe France would start trading with us again. Maybe England mm. would leave us alone. That that would put a huge amount of pressure on these other smaller European countries if we could get Russia to acknowledge our independence and truly trade with us. During the American Revolution, we tried to get Russia to accept us, but they were too allied with, with England. They didn't want to do it because they were buddies with England at the time. So this was an opportunity to get some recognition. We were we are a superpower today. We were hardly a power at all 200 <laughs> years ago. Exactly. I mean, we were struggling. And in order to survive as a nation, we had to thrive economically. And that meant people, we needed other countries to accept our exports. We needed to be able to trade. Some things never change, do they? All right, <laughs> now before right. I get into what it was like to go over there and the beginning of a long series of sacrifices that they would have to make, introduce us to his wife, Louisa, if you would, please. Well, Louisa Adams was born to an American father. She was born in Britain. She was born in England. Her mother was British. Her father was from Maryland. She grew up, uh, spent most of her childhood in France because her parents sided with the Patriots and had to leave London during the American Revolution. But because of that, Louisa could speak French fluently. She she meets John Quincy when he's a young diplomat, and they fall in love and they get married. But she's a perfect person to be a diplomat's wife because French is the language of diplomacy. She comes over to the United States. They live here for a while, and then um, and then he gets this call to go to Russia. And, of course, she's a natural to go with him because of her skills and obviously because she's his wife. And um, John Adams learned when he left Abigail during the American Revolution that, that it wasn't good. So he wanted Louisa to go with his son to Russia. All right. So as John Quincy is being called to, as the U.S. minister to Russia, yes. what's going on in their family? How many children at this point? At this point, they have three children. They have two older sons, ages eight and six, and I currently have eight-year-old and six-year-old boys. And then mm. they had a two, almost a two-year-old son um, who, um, you know, was, they still considered a two-year-old at that time an infant. And, uh, and then when he gets this call to go to Russia, uh, John Adams, the former president, realizes that it puts his family at great risk if all of them go. Because back then, you know, ships could wreck. It took 80 days to get to Russia by boat. And he was really afraid that his family lineage could be wiped out if there was an accident. So he, he also wanted those older two boys to be educated in America. So he made the decision that they would leave the eight- and six-year-old behind with, with the grandparents in Boston. And John Quincy and Louisa would take their two-year-old to Russia. That's absolutely amazing. So I want every mom to imagine what it would be like to follow your husband on his job and have to leave your eight-year-old and your six-year-old behind. Now, she gets on board a ship. Oh, I love the way you write about this. Uh, I got sick to my stomach reading it. 
And apparently, <laughs> Louisa didn't. Li- <laughs> Louisa, Louisa did words. not. Exactly right. Talk about, you talked about 80 plus days to be able to do this. And by the way, you write that John Quincy was concerned that even when they left to take the post, that they were concerned that perhaps given the change in the waters, that it might have even been a little late to get there in safe waters. But the journey was at times very rough, was it not? Yes, it was. They um, they were traveling, they were, tra- they were fighting the clock because the water and St. Petersburg in Russia freezes, and so the ships really have to get there by um, by October at the latest. And so they were up against a, a deadline to get to get over there. And um, you know, Louisa was just mourning and in grief at leaving these boys behind while she's on this trip. And she writes, you know, that ambition can never repay this sacrifice. Mm. Uh, and and that was um, you know that was true. She was just heartbroken and um, took hope that they would be gone a year, that that was the tentative plan, that they would be gone a year. But they encountered, when they got on the the road, so to speak, they got on the water, they realized that American ships were being confiscated. They came across 300 sailors who were detained in Denmark and couldn't couldn't leave because they were being accused of being Danish so or English, I should say. So they realized how perilous it was for Americans. Mm, exactly, and you're right. One point, the captain gets in a rowboat, thinks he's going to be washed over. By the grace of God, he managed to survive. But I could feel the ship rock as you were writing this segment. So here's Louisa. She's left her two little boys, eight and six. She has a two-year-old with her. She's seasick. They're traveling to a new land. All of this, folks, in service to their country. There's so much more to the story. We're going to come right back as we discuss American Phoenix with Jane Hampton Cook. This is her latest book. We'll also take your questions on the Adamses at 1-877-548-3675. Friends, this is Janet Parshall, and I want to take a moment to remind you that today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open. But I sure do appreciate your spending the hour with us. And thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the program. Well, that Russian music takes us to the next part of the story with John Quincy Adams and Louisa Adams. When last we met, it was an 80-plus day journey by ship. And now John Quincy and his wife Louisa are going to serve, although she is not officially a diplomat. But we'll get to that in a minute. Now, for one year, in theory at least, they're supposed to be serving in St. Petersburg, the United States minister to Russia. That was the honorable exile for John Quincy Adams as he's serving in that part of the world. The idea, again, to bring them into the fold economically, to have some allegiance with the United States. And so let me just linger on Louisa's charms a bit, if I can. It looks like John Quincy was somewhat like his dad, a bit irascible and not necessarily a warm and fuzzy kind of guy, but called him as he saw them. And it looks like, not unlike Abigail, Louisa was invaluable because apparently the czar just thought she was the cat's meow. That's right. She was very charming and she could speak French fluently, and the czar could speak French because it was the language of diplomacy. She was musical. She also knew how to compliment her host country. She talked admiringly of all the architecture and the art that she saw while she was in St. Petersburg, and this really flattered the czar and his family. She was uh, very captivating that way, but she was also just, she's highly intellectual, and that was um, sort of a 
a reversal of what a lot of people thought about America. A lot mm-hmm. of people kind of had the, um, they used the term savage, and we wouldn't use that term today, but they thought about, you know, the Native Americans and the Indians, and they, that was sort of their stereotype of, of America, and they were amazed at, at Louisa and John Quincy with their, their charm and their intellect. And so she was so charming that the Tsar of Russia asked to dance with her at a ball. It was just the two of them, and you can just see all the ladies' fans flaring yes. up, whispering behind, what is he doing? Why is he dancing with the American's wife? And um, and we the, the Adamses were a little puzzled by this, too, and um, it, it took a little while, but then they began to realize that that was his way of showing the other diplomats from all over Europe, I'm favoring America. Wow. So in other words, it's more than just a party. By the way, you write that it was not at all uncommon for some of these parties to last 18 hours. Yes. <laughs> a long time. <laughs> Makes my <laughs> feet hurt. <laughs> yes. And the thing was, you know, you, if you and I go to an event, usually we can leave when we want to, but <laughs> when our feet hurt. But they were, they were trapped. They couldn't leave until the czar left. When he had his last drink or last dance and said goodbye, then everybody could leave. So they were really captive at these parties until he left. So um, they were up a lot at night. They were tired. Yeah. And, but, but she is wooing him, which certainly has to help with the diplomacy aspect of yes. why Adams was set there in the first place. But right. you talk about feeling trapped. This and, and, I'm fa- and believe me, folks, there's so much more in the book, but I'm fast-forwarding just in deference to time. Sure. So now you're serving in St. Petersburg. Your heart is at home. Your children are at home. Two of your three children are at home. Your mother and father are at home. Your heart's at home. You served in the U.S. Senate. You still want to be a public servant. You're hoping that this is a way that gets you back into that way of becoming a more recognized public servant back in the States. But now the world changes because enter Napoleon Bonaparte. Who does what? Well, Napoleon invades Russia. That traps John Quincy and Louisa there. They thought several times they were going to get to go home. And then we go to war with England. Napoleon invades Russia. And they can't leave. They're stuck because it's just too dangerous to get on a ship and travel through a war. And uh, it, it, you know, Napoleon really, really does wreck their plans and everybody else's. And they're, they're within just 50, 60 miles of his invading army at one point. And so they, they're very nervous for their own personal safety. Yeah, it, it was very difficult. It's, kind of, it's a little bit like John Adams meets War and Peace because it's the same time period. Exactly. Now, Jane, I want to linger here for a minute, because I think for a lot of people, we fail to recognize that America, in many respects, fought not one but two wars of independence, and that the War of 1812 would, in fact, be that second war. So here is the U.S. and Great Britain, yet again, at war with one another. So talk to me a bit about that. The moral issue of the War of 1812 was was this um, practice called impressment. The English would come to our ships out at sea, and they would take our sailors, and they would force them to serve in the British Navy. To John Quincy Adams, that was equivalent of slavery. Yes. And it, they, he thinks that there were at least about 9,000 people impressed by the British. And that was because the British were fighting Napoleon. They needed every man they could get, so they would just take him, American or not. So we went to war with England because our sovereignty was being spit upon. And they weren't recognizing our citizenship. That was the moral issue of the war. And so uh, that's, that's why it's the second quest for independence. 
the second war of independence. It was a very important thing that we stand up and prove, you know, that we were a sovereign, independent nation. Jane, for people who don't live in the Mid-Atlantic region, this is a war that came very close to home, did it not? Yes, it did. Um, the, the British in 1814 decided they were going to try to get us to move all of our troops out of Canada. So they started terrorizing and raiding towns along the Chesapeake Bay. They would burn these towns that had nothing to do with the war. And they ultimately burned the White House and the Capitol. And when that happened, John Quincy and Louisa heard about it, you know, albeit several weeks later. They thought we were conquered. That was the way... Europeans interpreted the burning of the White House, that America was no more. Wow. Now, folks, again, you can't look at this through the lens of a 21st century set of glasses, but can you imagine now the White House being attacked today? What an act of war that would be. So here we are, a brand new nation, but we have other countries who refuse to recognize our sovereignty. So hence this second war of 1812. So much more right after this. Friends, this is Janet Parshall, and I want to take a moment to remind you that today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open. But I sure do appreciate your spending the hour with us, and thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the program. this point of the story, I had no choice but to play Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, because that's exactly the point we're at in our conversation with Jane Hampton Cook, one of my very, very, very favorite historians. Love her writing, love the way she brings history to life, and her latest book is called American Phoenix, John Quincy and Louisa Adams, The War of 1812, and The Exile That Saved American Independence. By the way, we've hotlinked Jane's website right on ours, in the market with JanetParshall.org, and the book is on the right-hand side where we always put our resources. If you love history, you will love this book, and even if you're just putting your little toe into history, go all the way in with this book and understand what this couple was like. It's just amazing, not only the history, but the relationship between the two and the role that faith played in their their lives as well. So I want to go back to the War of 1812 because it was close to home, right in our nation's capital, which was amazing. They're trapped. They thought they were going to be there a year. Now, while the War of 1812 was going on, I want to talk about what was going on in Louisa's life. You, and I love the way that you actually acknowledge in your acknowledgement page the fact that you reached out to some OBGYNs to find out about some maternal history, which, see, ladies, history can be as interesting to women as it can to men as well. But Louisa had a very, very difficult time. Between the birth of her second and third son, she lost a son, but she had a high incidence of miscarriages, didn't she? She did. I took her medical profile and uh, we and out, you know documented everything that I could about her, and I took it to my OBGYN, Dr. Glenn Silas in Northern Virginia, and we we talked through because I had never experienced a miscarriage um, in in the way that Louisa had, and I wanted to try to understand what it was like. And so he gave me some really good things to think about. 
And then in the course of editing this book over a couple of years, I experienced two miscarriages. And Mm. I suddenly understood her grief in a way that, you know, I never, I couldn't really understand before. And so here she is. She's had to leave two children behind. She has, you know, two miscarriages while she's in Russia. And just that the loss that she felt being alone, um, you know, over there with, with being, you know, the only American woman besides her sister who's with her. Mm. And so just, you know, just that grief. But that, you know, she did turn to her faith. She, she looked to God for hope um, and comfort. And in the midst of all this, she's asked to oversee a christening service for one yes. of her servant's children's and ch- child mm. and just how hard that might have been <laughs> to, to have mm. done that. And so, um, but then the blessing came, and she had... Um, she had a baby while she was over there, and the joy, you could just read it in her diary um, when yes. that baby came. And so, and I'm, I'm actually seven, almost seven months pregnant myself, and so oh. I sort of feel, can feel that after having loss and now looking, you know, to hope for the new little one mm. coming. Jane, that's so compassionate and insightful of you to say that, because it really does talk about some of the universality of the human experience, whether it's the early 1800s or the 21st century, how amazing that is. And by the way, thank you so much for including actual quotations right out of their diaries. You know, Scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and sometimes it's the pen. And you really could see how she, like C.S. Lewis says, the will has to precede the emotions. And she wanted to curl up. Her two boys are back in the States. She's miscarried twice, once in February of that year, the second time you write in July of that year. And yet she persevered and even went to this christening, which was difficult, but then gets pregnant with their first daughter. This is the first ever baby Louisa is born. John Quincy insists that the little girl be named after Mama. But this is not an easy trip for her either. No, it's not. And um, the the baby um, lives about 13 months because of that we don't know why for sure, but she had convulsions. And um, you know, I talked to a couple of pediatricians about what that could have been like and, um, and you know, the different things that could have caused that. It could have been a flu that attacked her brain. Um, but so, no, it was not an easy, um, it didn't, you know, end happily in that respect, um, for sure. But, um, and, and, you know, Louisa did go through a really dark period of depression yes, after her daughter yes. died deep depression and you can see in her writing how she um she's just searching and she's almost suicidal and very dark her thoughts are at this point but then she reads some poems by a french woman who is a christian martyr uh, and she copies some of these lines of poetry about christ's death and resurrection it's amazing how the next entries in her diary are lighter they're not as heavy you can see that the, the shift in the hope that she has, and then she she realizes that she can be reunited with her older children, and that God gives that to her to help her persevere, so that she can have that happy Mother's Day reunion, um, yeah. ultimately with her kids, and yeah. um, that that strength of motherhood um, really really does carry her through through and through yeah. her faith. 
You also remind us that there was no iPhone. There were no <laughs> emails that you had to yes. wait. In fact, I, I found myself panting reading some of these things, thinking how long she had to wait to get a letter to find out how the boys were doing um, and how Abigail would write. In fact, in one of her letters, she hoped that she would have a very fruitful year with grandchildren, which is very paradoxical and even part of the depression, I think, that she was dealing with. But how long was it from a letter to come from the states in Massachusetts back there at Peaceville to finally work its way all the way to St. Petersburg? It must have been an excruciating time. It was. It took, depending on the time of year, um, the worst case scenario was eight months, um, Mm. six to eight months. And that was because the water was frozen for a good portion of the year in Russia. They have a very long winter there because they're, you know, near the Arctic Circle. But also because our ships were being taken. If there were letters that didn't make it or were very delayed because the British were stopping our ships. But um, once the trade got better, once Russia began to trade with us, John Quincy, I think, wrote very happily that it had only taken six weeks in the summer to get a letter. That was a record Um, (laughs) to get a letter from the president of the United States in six weeks. And it only could have happened in the summer. And once, you know, our ships were freer to travel. Um, So, yes, I mean, so she would just couldn't wait to see that her boy's handwriting because that was assurance that they were alive and well. Mm-hmm. Wow. And friends, I hope you drop again this into the context of what it means to be a public servant. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. So the War of 1812 actually goes, if I did my homework right, until 1814, and it ends with the Treaty of Ghent. But isn't Adams called out of Russia, and he basically serves as the chief negotiator in the making of this treaty? Yes, he does. Um, he, is, he, he gets an assignment to go to Western Europe to Ghent to help negotiate the treaty to end the War of 1812. And he leaves Louisa and Charles, their, young, their youngest son, in Russia, thinking that he will come back and get them. And then he, he goes and he, he thinks the British aren't, real, aren't all that serious about negotiating. He thinks he's actually going to be back in about six weeks, but he was really gone. Mm. They were separated ten months, I believe, total, maybe a year by the time she actually makes it back to him. So, yes, the major sacrifice. Um, But he trusts Louisa so much that he writes her a letter early on about the negotiations, and he says, tell not a soul, (laughs) not Mm. a line, but I'm going to share with you what's going on because I need to. I need you to write me. And and their letters were going back and forth much more quickly because he was just in Western Europe, not in America. Yes. So, but um, wow. yes, so lots of sacrifice there. Um, but he says that his greatest day, one of the happiest days of his life, was when he had his share in restoring peace to the world. And that mm. was through the treaty that ended the War of 1812. And interestingly, the, the Prime Minister of England was complaining in letters that the Tsar of Russia had become half an American and that they no <laughs> longer had his support. And that was because of John Quincy and Louisa Adams. Unbelievable. Hence the exile that saved the American independence. So that's right. It's just it's amazing when you see these pieces. But again, going to the human interest aspect and history is filled with human perspectives and the human interest aspect of this. So here she is. She's had a couple of miscarriages. Her Mm -hmm. precious baby girl dies. She goes into depression and she's separated from her husband. But serving something greater than themselves. John obviously used in a powerful way to broker this treaty, which then brings about the end of the War of 1812 in 1814. 
And then eventually he goes on and he serves in the court of St. James, which is absolutely fascinating because his dad had that exact same post, did he not? That's right. Yes, he was... um he was the minister to to Great Britain after his post in, in Russia. It was a very prestigious post to be named as the president's top diplomat to England. And that was a post that his dad had held. So it was a very, you know, source of pride to be able to do that, um, like your father had done. And it it was a very, you know, special special thing for him to be able to do that. And they worked out a lot of the kinks that they couldn't work out in the treaty. They worked out with England after the war the issue of impressment and taking our sailors, and they worked all of that out. Um, And so it was a very important time. Exactly. And that's when they were reunited with their kids. They came on a boat over to England, and they they met up that way. And what a joyous reunion that must have been. By the way, folks, I want you to hang on to this idea of impressment and John Quincy Adams and a particular passion. This was really fire in his bones, and we'll fast forward toward the end of his life, and you'll hear how this played out in an amazing way. The book is called American Phoenix, John Quincy and Louisa Adams, The War of 1812, and the Exile that Saved American Independence. Imagine, by the way, not once but twice we're at war with Great Britain, and eventually you're called to serve to minister in the court of St. James. An amazing, amazing bit of history. More after this. Jane Hampton Cook is with us, a marvelous historian, a superb author of history, really just makes it come alive and jump off the pages. Her newest book, American Phoenix, John Quincy and Louisa Adams, The War of 1812 and the Exile that Saved American Independence. And as any good author will do, the book is rich, rich, rich. And even the gift, as I said earlier, of one hour just allows me the opportunity to only hop, skip and jump over the top. And I commend this to you to learn more about this couple who, by the way, Jane, not unlike John and Abigail, clearly very much in love as evidenced by their correspondence with one another. That's right. They they called each other beloved friend. Uh, they they really did trust each other's opinions and judgments. And that's what's amazing about Louisa's story. Why she's an American Phoenix is that at the beginning she has no say in the decision to leave her children behind, and then uh, that's made by the the president, former President Adams, and then. At the end of the story, at the end of the book, she's making this journey to take her son Charles to be reunited with John Quincy and their older sons, and she's making all of these decisions because her husband trusts her judgment so much that he knows that she can safely travel because he, he knows her judgment. And that that's a really beautiful, beautiful thing, and that here he was, this guy down on his luck, losing the job of his dreams. He takes a job he doesn't particularly want, and then God uses that to put him on track to become president, ultimately. Yeah. And that's yeah. why they're both, you know, called American Phoenixes. And then America, of course, uh, was down on its luck, and then camp comes out of the War of 1812 with um, into the era of good feeling, as they call it, where we have rich trade and lots of great things happen. Mm-hmm. And we're a bona fide adult, as you write in the book. That's By right. the way, John Quincy is very much responsible for brokering a lot of trade 
treaties, did he not? In other words, really opening up the world to commerce with the United States. He did. When he became president, he negotiated more treaties with other countries for trade than any other previous president. And that was largely because he knew how to after his experience as a diplomat. He saw how valuable it was for America to really be able to trade freely and fairly and for our exports to be you know, accepted. And one of the really cool things I uncovered is that you've been playing a lot of historical music and the Star Spangled mm-hmm. Banner. There was a song called the Adams and Liberty Song that was written for his father, I believe in 1791. And when I found out that it was set to the same tune that our Star Spangled Banner is mm-hmm. now set to, I mm-hmm. got chills because it was before mm-hmm. the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> and just that just gave me chills that that Adams and Liberty song is to the same tune. So oh, it's so exciting. And just this is beyond the time frame that you write about in American Phoenix, but just for our friends to understand yes. who John Quincy was. He finishes his term at the Court of St. James. He's eventually made the eighth Secretary of State, deemed to be one of the best ever to have held that office, serves in the House of Representatives, and then in fact goes on to become president of the United States. But it doesn't end there, does it? No, I mean he he's he's the only US president who serves as president and then goes back and serves in the in Congress as a member of the House of Representatives and he um he was nominated at one point for the Supreme Court so he yes. really almost touched every single branch of government but that shows you what a heart of public service he had that that it wasn't you know it was not beneath him to go from the presidency to the House of Representatives. Huge. That it, oh, was, I tell you. it was just so, it was just what you did. It was the way yeah. you served your, you know, the public. It didn't matter what which branch you happened to be in at the time. Exactly. So. And didn't see it as a demotion to go from the executive back to the legislative branch again. No. And, and, and no. talked. And I talked about the issue of slavery, hugely important because for people who know the story of Amistad, this was the man who represented uh, the people who were held as slaves on the ship. And uh, it's so interesting because I remember when visiting their home in Quincy to see the Bible that John Quincy was given by the people he represented. Mm. Uh, and, And it was just amazing because there's a verse in there from the book of Psalms talking about people who were oppressed, who were set free. And when they gave him the Bible, I understand that Adams's response was, it is the principles here enshrined in this book upon which I was able to adjudicate your case. So, I mean, this was clearly a man of faith. Fast forward also, how sad it was. And this is why I started out by asking about John Quincy's brothers, because Louisa still had sorrow. It didn't all get better when her husband had all of these different positions. As it tells us in Scripture, life is filled with trials. Her two sons that she pined for, uh, alcoholism rears its ugly head again, does it not? It does. She lost her son John to alcoholism when he was a young adult, um, and and her son Charles, uh, not Charles, um, but um, George, the oldest, also died tragically. He had already started a robust career in public service, and he died, and um, they're not exactly sure how, but he fell from a steamboat and drowned. Mm-hmm. And, as a young adult, so yes, I mean, and, and I think for a while she felt like maybe it was because she left them that they turned out or had these problems as adults. And we can't uh, we can't let guilt deceive us, you know, in thinking mm-hmm. things like that. And she, her sister, helped her realize no, that wasn't the case. And um, Louisa took great joy. Her son John um, left behind a daughter and a wife in. Louisa really took them in and nurtured those those granddaughters as if they were, you know, her own. 
and mm. uh, and she found a lot of joy in being a grandmother. And uh, I think that was, you know, a blessing that she experienced. And a repeat of what Abigail did. Abigail becomes yes. the grandmother to her two sons, and then right. history repeats itself, and she becomes a grandmother to her son's children as well. Just, uh, Jane, I'm telling you, absolutely fascinating history. And friends, there's just so much more in this book. Big question, last one, and I've saved it to the end, and that is the role of faith in their life. You were gracious in including so many of their references to God. It was clearly a vibrant faith, was it not? It was. John Quincy Adams read the Bible every day, several chapters. It was his goal to get through the Bible every year. Um, and I, I found it a little amusing when he's having a lot of trouble with the French ambassador to Russia. He decides he's going to read the Bible in French to help his language <laughs> skills, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but then he could also talk about the French theologian and, you know, everything. So he used that. Um, his faith was important to him. It was personal. It was real. And um, it was just a part of who they both were. Mm. Jane, thank you for making history come alive. And now, friends, I'm going to give away some copies to the first five callers at 1-877-548-3675, 1-877-548-3675. I'm going to give you a copy of American Phoenix. I want you to fall in love with history, and I think this book just might be the one to spark that interest in you. I thank Jane Hampton Cook for being with us and for writing American Phoenix, John Quincy and Louisa Adams, The War of 1812 and the Exile that Saved American Independence. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next time.